Welcome to Body Signals, the Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, the Chief Data Scientist here at Cygnos. This is Season 4, Episode 9, Prevention and Management of Type 2 Diabetes with Dr. Sunil Kolawad. On this episode, Dr. Dixon and I are joined by Dr. Sunil Kolawad, the Chief of Metabolic Endocrinology at UCSF. We discuss the conditions of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, specifically the basics of diabetes, the symptoms, causes, and treatments, how our medical system is ill-equipped to help patients treat their disease, whether there are optimal glucose levels, and beyond nutrition, what's the most important lifestyle improvements, sleep, stress management, or exercise to help prevent the disease, and finally, the role that GLP-1 agonists play and what lifestyle changes are necessary for lifelong success. This and so much more. A brief disclaimer, Dr. Kolowad and Dr. Dixon's appearance on the show and their statements are meant for educational purposes only. No doctor-patient relationship is established by their appearance on body signals. Should you have any questions on today's topics, you should consult with your own health care provider. Dr. Kolowad and Dr. Dixon's opinions expressed on this show are their opinions only and do not reflect the opinions of their employer. Now on to today's show. Welcome back to Body Signals. We are thrilled to have Dr. Sunil Kolewad back on the show. Dr. Kolewad, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. And Dr. Kolewad is the Chief of Metabolism and Endocrinology at UCSF. He is also an advisor to us here at Cygnos. I'm also thrilled to have Dr. William Dixon on the other side of the table this time. So Dr. William Dixon will be co-hosting with us. So Dr. Dixon... Welcome to you as well. It's great to be here. So, Doc, it's great to have you back on the show. And since we started offering uh, our software now to people with diabetes, that um, type 2 diabetes, that are not managing with insulin, we thought it would be great to have you back on the show to talk about type 2 diabetes. So let me just launch with some basic questions for some of our audience who may not know a lot about type 2 diabetes. Can you just tell us a little bit about, uh, about the disease? Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Bill. Um, I really appreciate the chance to be here. Type 2 diabetes is really important to talk about because it is so incredibly prevalent, uh, not only in the United States, but worldwide. 90% or more of all people with diabetes are people who have type 2 diabetes. And what distinguishes type 2 diabetes from the other type of diabetes, commonly known as type 1 diabetes or autoimmune diabetes, is that whereas in type 1 diabetes, uh, due to autoimmune or immunologically directed assault on the cells that make insulin, i.e. the beta cells of the pancreas, Type 2 diabetes uh, is characterized by not a failure fundamentally to make insulin, but in a failure of that insulin to do its job because all of the rest of the tissues in the body that are supposed to respond to insulin don't respond to insulin as well as they should. And that lack of responsiveness we call insulin resistance. And therefore, type 2 diabetes is often characterized by a fundamental presence of insulin resistance in important tissues in the body like adipose tissue or fat 
muscle, skeletal muscle, heart muscle, the liver, and even the brain. Tissues that normally respond very sensitively to insulin, dictating all of the effects that insulin has uh, in the body, including most notably the maintenance of normal blood sugar. And so when these tissues become resistant to the effects of insulin, that puts incredible stress on those beta cells in the pancreas, the ones that make insulin, because they have to make that much more insulin per minute, per hour, per day, per year to overcome all of that resistance to the action of insulin. And over time, that stress on the pancreas leads to damage and the demise, ultimately, of those beta cells that make insulin. And as those cells begin to wear out, blood sugar inexorably goes up and ultimately renders people with type 2 diabetes similar to people with type 1 diabetes in that they also end up with a fundamental insufficiency in terms of how much insulin they make. But whereas type, type 1 diabetes is characterized from the beginning by a failure to make insulin altogether, type 2 diabetes is characterized fundamentally by a lack of response to the insulin that we make. So for type 2 diabetes, how does this usually present in a clinical setting? What types of symptoms do people with type 2 diabetes usually show up with? Absolutely. Um, So one of the things to note up front is that there is a correlation between type 2 diabetes and the presence of what we call metabolically unhealthy obesity or excess weight, in particular, weight that uh, expands in the center of the body, within the abdomen, around the organs, inside the belly. And that sort of central adiposity, we call it, is also associated with fat deposition in skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, and the liver, uh, which uh, we call broadly steatosis, hepatic steatosis, for example, meaning liver fat excess. And so all of that fat in the quote-unquote wrong place in the context of overall increased body fat leads to this insulin resistance, which puts the pressure on the beta cells and ultimately leads to them wearing out. So once the beta cells start wearing out, in addition to any other uh, symptoms that might be associated with fatty liver or with obesity per se, there starts to manifest symptoms associated with this relative insufficiency of insulin. And those symptoms can include uh, increased frequency and volume of urination, uh, becoming concerningly frequent and concerningly large um, in volume, Uh, increased thirst, secondary to all the dehydration that individuals experience as they they lose fluid um, uh, excessively through their urine. Because of the inability to use calories because of the uh, fundamental uh, insensitivity to insulin and the inability to use glucose, which is the main source of calories inside our bodies, um, there is oftentimes a loss of muscle mass, sometimes even a loss of weight. Um, Because all of our body fluids um, in the context of diabetes as it worsens um, are um, containing more and more glucose, higher and higher concentrations of glucose. Um, Those fluids in particular, for example, the fluid um, uh, inside of the eye become hazy Um, with all of that glucose accumulation and that haze 
um, can lead to blurring of vision and um, loss of visual acuity. So, so, so oftentimes people with diabetes, as it gets um, uh, you know, uh, uncontrolled without any treatment whatsoever, can notice that their, vi- their visual acuity uh, is dropping off. And, um, and all of this coupled with um, a lot of fatigue, um, excessive amount of tiredness, uh, really oftentimes leads people to go to the doctor because they just feel like they're falling apart. Um, and uh, usually an astute clinician will see that constellation of symptoms and order a, 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 a glucose and other laboratories to discern whether diabetes could be causing um, the, this set of symptoms. And, and uh, given the frequency with which diabetes presents uh, and the commonality of obesity in our society, those tests often reveal indeed that the person has diabetes. And talking about those tests, when, when I go to my primary care physician, uh, and this has been the case for, I don't know, like 10 years, the way that uh, they're screening for, for diabetes is to do a fasting glucose test. And I was just thinking about this the other day. We were analyzing all of our data across all of our, uh, our members at Cygnos, and we found that the low point in glucose happens on average for our entire sample between 5 a.m. and 11 a.m., with the high point being about 11 p.m. So since it's a fasting test, most of us go to the doctor first thing in the morning because we don't want to miss a meal is this the best way to to screen for for diabetes? That is also a really uh, interesting question, and um, there's some nuance there. The American Diabetes Association, American uh, College of Endocrinology, um, the Obesity Society, the Endocrine Society have all got uh, guidelines about um, criteria for diagnosing uh, diabetes, whether it's type 2 or type 1. Um, and those criteria include multiple uh, uh, tests that can rule somebody in or out for diabetes in, in a variety of ways, not just um, through the use of fasting blood glucose, although you're right that that's the most common way um, people screen for diabetes. Um, the fasting glucose screening approach is a, one that's sort of historically engendered in um, our screening approach in general, um, and that is because the Hemoglobin A1C test, which is also another um, way that we can not only track uh, uh, people's overall management of their diabetes, but we can also use that to diagnose diabetes. Ha- that that hadn't come about yet, and so the only uh, the only thing we really had as a test initially was the the glucose measurement uh, in the blood, and um, that was actually pretty onerous to do. Um, uh, 30, 40 years ago. I um, mean, it's gotten a lot easier and continuous glucose monitoring has now made that, um, that you know, fundamentally easier. But uh, consensus guidelines dictated what that cutoff uh, had been. And it has fallen progressively over time over the last 40 years and is currently 126 milligrams per deciliter in the United States. And um, we define so-called pre-diabetes at arbitrarily, um, and through sort of consensus um, uh, as um, 100 milligrams per deciliter to 126 milligrams per deciliter. Um, so that if you had a fasting blood glucose below 90 or below 100, sorry, um, you would be classified as having normal glucose uh, control. However, if an individual is having some of those symptoms I just mentioned, or a very strong family history, or is uh, overweight, um, or has excess central, um, uh, so-called visceral obesity, uh, 
we might want to use other measures to try to, to, to be more rigorous and not uh, falsely suggest to an individual that they may not have diabetes or prediabetes yet when they actually do. Um, and so we can use the hemoglobin A1C test, which is uh, based on red blood cell lifespan, an indicator of average glycemic control over about a three-month period. Um, and there are nomograms that connect the hemoglobin A1C percentage to uh, uh, what fasting uh, blood glucose might be. Um, and so, again, through consensus, um, we now um, state that uh, hemoglobin A1C 6.5% or above is indicative of, of uh, diabetes, whereas a hemoglobin A1C in the range of 5.7 to 6.5 is an indicator of prediabetes, and hemoglobin A1C values of 5.7% or less would be indicative of um, you know, the, the, the presence of normal glucose control. There's a third way uh, that we, that we uh, test for uh, diabetes, presence or absence of diabetes, and that is through something called an oral glucose tolerance test, where an individual is uh, asked to consume a beverage that contains a specific amount of glucose in it, and then uh, we track the blood glucose over a two-hour period, and there are cutoffs for the maximum glucose, um, uh, not exceeding 200 milligrams per deciliter at any point during the test, and also uh, the uh, two-hour value after the, the drink was consumed uh, being 140 milligrams per deciliter or less. So if either of those two criteria is, is sort of violated at any point during the test or by the end of the two-hour period, then uh, you, um, you can rule in for diabetes on that basis. So a person could have so-called impaired glucose tolerance on one of these provocative tests and rule in for diabetes even if their fasting blood glucose might say that they had prediabetes or perhaps even you know, normal glucose tolerance. Um, and so the more you are suspicious based on other factors, family history, genetics, uh, uh, the presence of comorbid uh, conditions like, for example, obesity, we would want to do additional, more rigorous testing. Um, to your question about when this should be, should be done, the reason why we do the fasting blood glucose is because it's a way to normalize data across people. Because if you just let people test and just take the number whenever it occurs in their day, um, then... Uh, it'll all be a function of when during the day people eat, how many hours of sleep they tend to get, how active they are during the day, and a lot of other factors that can confound the interpretation of a number that you get for a glucose value that you measure. And even though we can't eliminate those confounds entirely in free-living population of people, asking them to get their glucose before they have eaten anything or drank anything that has calories in it, and after we assume that they've slept all night, is a way to at least be able to, to sort of set the value in a place where we think that most people will be metabolically similar in terms of their circadian biology for the day and in terms of um, their, their nutritional status. Um, furthermore, if you, um, if you tested uh, diagnostically only after people ate, then it, the value could be really a function of what they ate. Um, as opposed to the time of day, and that would again create some confound. And so it's not really at anywhere near a perfect approach that we have, but there are a lot of mitigating factors that prevent any test from being perfect for, for the diagnosis of diabetes. And so that's one reason why 
uh, we do it in the fasting setting. I will say, though, that you can also diagnose diabetes by um, having on two separate occasions a glucose value at any point during the day, um, regardless of whether the, the individual has been, uh, has been fasting or even after they've eaten, that's over 200 milligrams per deciliter. So if you see an individual who has a value that's non-fasting, over 200 milligrams per deciliter, and you get that same kind of value again on a second attempt to test for it, that alone is a rule-in for, for diabetes uh, because um, it, it, it suggests that even if it was done 15, 20 minutes after someone ate, and even if they ate whatever they wanted to, the glucose really shouldn't go that high. Um, and that would be an indication for diabetes um, at the outset. Great. Th thanks for running through that. Just to summarize, uh, from the symptoms you mentioned on the, the beginning of the podcast, if anyone's experiencing those things like frequent urination, um, even if they have the extra adiposity or the visceral fat, the, the fat around the abdomen, they should probably be talking with their physician and trying to get more information or mentioning that um, to their primary physician. Right. And then and then go from there Absolutely. instead of just using a, a fasting glucose. Uh, but you did you, you you ran through for us and I really appreciate it. The all the different um, uh, blood glucose numbers, uh, you know, the, the cutoff for for prediabetes and, and diabetes. I'm curious your opinion. We get this question a lot from our members. They want to know, OK, I, I know what the the dividing line is between a disease state and a non-disease state for like a hundred for prediabetes. But what is the optimal glucose numbers that I should be sh shooting for maybe as a person that doesn't have diabetes or maybe an individual who has been diagnosed with type two diabetes? Is there an optimal range that they be sh should be shooting for when they're looking at the data from their CGM? That's a great question. I, I, I think that in truth, we don't know what the optimal blood glucose is that an individual should be shooting for. Rather, I think the key that defines vulnerability for worsening of fasting blood glucose, for example, the thing that we see that gives us the most concern or suspicion that over the next year or two or five years, an individual who is uh, currently not um, uh, suggested to have diabetes may go on to develop it is what we call glycemic instability, meaning that the fluctuation in glucose in response to food that's eaten becomes wider and wider. And so that could be a function of an unhealthy diet that's really challenging the beta cells to make a lot of insulin every time the person eats a meal, or it could reflect genetics and other fundamental um, uh, factors that dictate vulnerability to, to, towards the pathogenesis of diabetes in an individual. But in terms of what an individual themselves could look for, it would be if they, for example, had a continuous glucose monitor um, and the means to follow their glucose, it would be to try to optimize the diet and their behavioral controllable aspects of their day-to-day -day existence so that they could minimize those sharp fluctuations in glucose that occur throughout the day, particularly those that follow meals. Because meal tolerance 
the ability to maintain a stable glucose that minimally elevates and then comes right back down to the same baseline that it was at prior to the meal, that responsiveness uh, becomes disrupted and weaker before the fasting glucose starts elevating in most individuals who will go on to develop diabetes. And so if, if a person just checked a blood glucose in the morning and they didn't do anything else, like on a finger stick, they could see that that number was stable even beneath the pre-diabetes range potentially, but their glycemic response to their meals could be slowly fluctuating more and more and becoming less stable over time, and they wouldn't know that. So if the person could look for something uh, that might be more predictive, it would be to look for the meal response and the, the sharpness of the rise of glucose in response to the same meal over time, you know, when consumed year after year, and also the, the, the ability for the glucose to return back to that same baseline in a reliable manner after the meal is finished being eaten. That's that's great advice. And for those uh, that are listening that are Cygnos members, we actually produce in the reports tab a coefficient of variation that we call glucose variability, which uh, gives you some metrics around how much your glucose is bouncing up and down throughout the day. So that might be another great way of getting some insight on on your numbers past just looking at what your 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 glucose is at any time of the day but also a great tip to to just look at how um your glucose reacts uh to um to after you've you've had a meal absolutely i want to jump in here for a second and and bring up i think what is a i've always found an interesting difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes and then uh we'll talk a little bit about type 2 diabetes. So there, there was a study I read recently that was pretty fascinating. And it took um, new onset people with type 1 diabetes who were mostly kind of like uh, teenagers, and they randomized them 50-50 to very intense glucose control or a little bit more, um, a little bit less restrictive glucose control. And so in the intense one, it was like uh, watts of insulin, um, and uh, making sure that your glucose wasn't going too high at all, um, and that uh, in an effort to kind of support the remaining beta cells that they had in their pancreas to say, hey, we're going to you know, make sure that we can give as much uh, support to these beta cells so they don't start to burn out. Um, and then in the other group, it was you know, usual control, kind of what you would do for anybody who's newly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, and at the end of a year, they looked and saw what the residual beta cell function was, um, basically how well are those cells doing. And there was uh, absolutely zero difference in the uh, beta cell function after a year, which is indicative of the fact that like once your this autoimmune destructive process starts, there's not really anything you can do um, as or yet anyways i'm sure you know hopefully someday in the future we'll have better treatments but it really is just it just happens uh in the setting of type 1 diabetes um in the setting of type 2 diabetes it's very very different we we you know you can have evidence of problems long before anything is kind of set in stone in terms of uh being on the spectrum of um metabolic syndrome and eventual type 2 diabetes and even when you're diagnosed uh, with type 2 diabetes, there is ways of 
um, getting back into a, a setting where you don't necessarily have type 2 diabetes or you can have type 2 diabetes in remission or reverse it um, with uh, kind of lifestyle medication changes. Um, and so, you know, that's, a, I think, a key difference between them. And, and for me, it's um, one of the reasons why, like earlier detection of type 2 and earlier understanding of what are the factors that lead to eventual type 2 diabetes is so important. We have more and more evidence showing that um, it's not like once you hit an A1C of 6.5 and are officially diagnosed with diabetes, that's when all the damage starts to happen. Uh, more and more, I think we understand that the, you know, the damage to your blood vessels, to your eyes, to your heart, um, to your nerves, all of that is happening uh, well before you hit some you know, kind of like Dr. Kolop was saying, a little bit arbitrary number, um, you know, the difference between 6.3 and 6.6 is, you know, not that much realistically and probably damage is occurring at both. Um, yeah. Yep. And, and, and furthermore, the, you know, the very fact that we now have a diagnosis we call prediabetes is a function of the fact that, you know, we are trying to balance creating, uh, a sense that risk is present far before symptoms manifest in people and that um, the pathogenesis of, of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, happens in a progressive manner over a long period of time, uh, over years and years. And so trying to head that off at the pass and be proactive and preventative um, is a goal and that goal is being balanced by the fact that in practical sense, in, in sort of primary care medical practice, we, in addition to giving anticipatory guidance to everybody to try to prevent metabolic disease, we do have to have some cutoffs when we can initiate you know, various, various therapeutics. And so we're stuck trying to balance the fact that diagnose, diagnoses require thresholds to rule in or rule out that diagnosis. But um, you know, what, uh, what was just stated is absolutely true and that this is an, a spectrum of a process that begins oftentimes very early in life. In fact, we now no longer think of type 1 diabetes as diabetes in youth and type 2 diabetes as so-called adult onset diabetes. Rather, we know that a lot of people who uh, develop type 2 diabetes have either the formal diagnosis made when they're either still children or adolescents these days, um, or at least, um, as, as uh, was just mentioned, the process that led to that diagnosis was well underway when the individual was very young. Um, and so, you know, we cannot, I cannot, um, uh, you know, over, overstate or agree more with the, the idea that there is something preventable at the heart of what drives type 2 diabetes um, that is fundamentally different than what drives type 1 diabetes. We, we, we are just in the infancy of thinking of therapeutics now that can stave off type 1 diabetes, but those are immunologic therape therapeutics that um, alter something we call um, self-tolerance um, uh, so that we, our immune system does not attack our own cells and only attacks foreign invaders like viruses, bacteria, and parasites. And um, that idea of self-tolerance is at the root of what causes type 1 diabetes. And, you know, that is not something that can be dealt with from a behavioral perspective anywhere near like what we have available to us potentially to prevent type 2 diabetes. 
I, I, I think that that's something that everybody should understand about type two. Yes, absolutely. And and going a little further with type two diabetes, we often hear that it's reversible. I'm curious to your clinical experience with the reversibility of type two diabetes, and not just the reversal of the diabetes, but also um, any damage that may have been done to things like uh, eyesight and blood vessels. Is that also reversible? Yeah. So diabetes is reversible. Uh, type 2 diabetes is reversible. Type 2 diabetes is preventable. Um, there is a point at which complications that result from uncontrolled type 2 diabetes can be irreversible. I don't know that it is well known what that point exactly is. And so I tend to still now, given what I've seen from you know over 20 years of managing patients, um, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to be an optimist in this regard. Glycemic control, management of blood sugar, minute to minute, day to day, as well as chronically vis-a-vis -vis the hemoglobin A1C test, um, can not only prevent complications, it can keep complications that are already in place from getting worse. And the jury is actually out on whether complications that have already set in place can regress once uh, glucose control is achieved. Separately, as was brought up, diabetes does not exert consequences on the body in terms of cardiovascular health, risk for heart attack, risk for stroke, risk for heart failure, risk for kidney, uh, comp uh, kidney disease, and, and ultimately kidney failure um, as examples, just because of the elevation of glucose. Elevation of glucose is a big factor, but diabetes disrupts metabolism in a much more fundamental way across the board. And that disruption also has effects on uh, these uh, uh, organs that we care about that ultimately lead to, for example, heart attack, which kills more people in the United States uh, than most cancers do. So we don't just want to control glucose. If we did, we could just give everybody insulin and control glucose. But that might not be the way to control risk as well as we want to control risk. For that, we need to engage in the behavioral modifications that can reverse the metabolic dysfunction that led to the diabetes in the first place. And that reversal can lead to um, a, a lot of benefits, not only on the preventative side, but potentially in regressing disease that's already in place. So there's no time that's too late to engage in the combination of really good glucose control and really good behavioral um, lifestyle modification. And speaking about those, those lifestyle modifications, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that if we were to try and force rank the importance that you've seen in a clinical setting of nutrition, exercise, stress management, sleep, that nutrition would probably be first, but maybe I'm wrong. Is there, do you believe, a ranking of, of those factors in which you found to be most important to helping people reverse their type 2 diabetes? Yeah, I do. Um, so historically, people have weighted exercise over really, really re overhauling and, and thinking critically about their nutrition, with the idea being that, that uh, diabetes results from obesity, 
type 2 diabetes results from obesity and that obesity results from inactivity. And therefore, if an individual can increase their physical activity, they can reverse all of this. That idea fueled um, the sort of you know, gym and, 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 and um, uh, you know, workout facility craze that swept um, the United States and then subsequently the entire world and that is still a predominant factor in our lives today. But it's been reasonably well shown that with no other interventions in place, the presence or absence of a, an exercise regimen on its own is usually insufficient to reverse an individual's diabetes, to prevent diabetes, um, or to, um, to reverse obesity and, and, and bring someone back to their, their you know, pre-morbid weight before the weight gain had started in the first place for that individual. So exercise is hugely important. There's no question about that. It's, it's, the, it's one of the only things, for example, that can raise HDL um, or so-called good cholesterol. It's one of the only things that can fundamentally um, bring down blood pressure um, without you know, medication. So, so, di- so, so exercise is a bedrock, but it is not the thing that I focus on first. Um, rather, if, if I were to compare against the benefits of exercise, I would rather, um, from a diabetes perspective, my patient walk regularly, engage in, in physical activity in the context of their daily life. For example, choosing to park at the back of a parking lot and walk to the store as opposed to trolling around for a spot that's right next to the store, taking a couple of flights of stairs up and always taking the stairs down instead of waiting for elevators, things like that, that you can actually incorporate steps into your daily life. I would rather my patient just did that and not worry about you know, sweating it out at the gym with a, a, a lot of people who are much younger and in better shape than them. And instead, take that effort and, and, and put it into, into eating a fundamentally healthier diet. The impact of that um, a, a, a nutritionally focused approach is much more tangible and the literature suggests much more powerful um, than an exercise-first approach without worrying about nutrition. And then the, the, the only other point I will make is that with each passing year over the last 10 years until the present, Publication after publication indicates that we have been paying far too little attention to sleep. And we now know that the impact of sleep on how we process the nutrients we eat, on how we burn calories whenever we do exercise, and um, on our basal metabolic rate and intermediary metabolism in general um, is really powerful. Because circadian biology and um, sleep and trains components of that circadian biology sort of overlay on top of all of the other um, uh, metabolic inputs that we experience, namely nutrition and our physical activity. And so the, the sleep acts sort of like a gain switch, amplifying the effectiveness of the other things that we do. Without appropriate sleep, you just cannot get the full benefit out of any of those other things that you might try to incorporate. So sleep is really, we are now realizing, fundamental. And, and there's, you know, there's so many examples that, that underscore that, but maybe one of the most illustrative is the fact that shift workers 
and people who have disrupted sleep-wake cycles as a function of either travel for work or their, their work itself have far higher rates of diabetes and overweight than people who don't engage in that kind of work and that kind of disruption of their sleep-wake cycle. And so if you control for all the other things that those people do or don't do, that fact alone is correlated with increased um, rates of disease for those individuals. So that's a great indication that, that, that tells you how powerful uh, regular, consistent, and, and appropriate sleep can be. Great. Thanks for that. And you, it's interesting you bring up all of this. We had just a few episodes ago, we had a primary care physician on the show, uh, Dr. Udaman Chandi, and she was telling us that she gets as a, as a primary care physician about seven to eight minutes per patient. So when she gets somebody who she feels um, might be in that pre-diabetes zone, uh, it, it seems like it'd be a lot of challenge to educate the patient on all the things they can do to start to um, you know, first prevent this from, from progressing any further and, and also f- reversing it through, uh, through diet nutrition, but also through, um, through lifestyle changes, movement and, and sleep and stress management. What do you feel about the challenges that, that uh, exist today in, in the medical community about addressing all of these issues and how we can do that to really help patients? Wow, that is a really complicated question because you are uh, bringing into it a lot of trends that are defining American medicine and the American healthcare system. The American healthcare system is, from a financial perspective, focused on productivity because non procedural disciplines where we're not putting things into people, taking things out of people, or um, imaging uh, people using instruments that can get pictures from inside them in some way. Uh, If you're not doing a procedure, then per visit, you're not being reimbursed very well for that care. And so all of the thinking-related disciplines where you're really trying to put factors together to uh, try to do what's best for an individual in terms of the long-term consequence to that person's life, that kind of thought work is not fundamentally valued in many aspects of our healthcare system. And so as doctors, we know that these things are immensely important and powerful in terms of the impact that they have for people, but we don't have the time to engage in providing all of that thought and all of that discourse to patients for their benefit because the healthcare system is not designed to give us that time. And so, you know, what you mentioned about uh, the, about primary care, that permeates all of healthcare in the office setting. We just do not have enough time in visits to go through all the myriad factors that we've just spent this time thus far discussing um, with patients on a one-on-one basis. So diseases like diabetes, in fact, diabetes type 2 is really the exemplar of this principle, these are uh, areas of what we call population health because factors impact entire populations of people. The rates of diabetes in demographic segments of our society as a whole are going up. But we are trying to take care of patients one-on-one, not at the population level. 
in American medicine, and we're not provided the time necessary to do it on a one-on-one basis. And so in order to do that effectively, we need patients to have access to tools outside of just our individual doctor-patient visit relationship to help with what we are trying to do for them because we don't have the time in the office to do it. And so tools like what Cygnos is developing are, in my opinion, increasingly going to become not only critical, but essential elements of a comprehensive care strategy that can not only help us manage patients in the one-on-one sense, but across populations, most notably the most vulnerable populations for which access to knowledgeable expert medical care, um, the ability for those providers to spend the time that's necessary to overcome a lot of social determinants of health that dictate vulnerability are are not present. Um, um, But tools that patients can utilize to double down on, practice, optimize the things that we might tell them to do in a one-on-one setting um, between a doctor and a patient, those tools can help us accomplish what we need to at the population level, and really not much else can do that. So just to, to close out on this section, when we talk about those tools, so a person with type 2 diabetes that's not dependent on insulin uh, becomes a member of Cygnos. They've got access to our tool, to all the data that it provides. As uh, as an expert in in endocrinology and, and metabolic endocrinology, what, how would you suggest that that individual use the tool best? Yeah, uh, so I think um, we we sort of perhaps glossed over one important point at the very outset. You mentioned, Bill, that um, we were going to be focusing on people living with diabetes who are not managing their diabetes with insulin, i.e. they were man- they're managing their diabetes with the combination of lifestyle-related um, efforts and mostly pill-based or injectable um, uh, medications that are not insulin. And then there's a whole array of different uh, uh, medication choices for people with diabetes these days uh, apart from insulin. So there's a lot of people uh, out there that are that are managing diabetes who don't take insulin or at least have not yet started taking insulin. And so um, whereas with people who are on insulin, the CGM utility is first and foremost for making sure that people don't develop either high blood sugars or very low, dangerously dropping blood sugars as a function of the insulin that they're taking. The utility of CGM for people who are not taking insulin is just as important, even though we're not talking about protecting them from undue harm that could, that could come from a function of overusing or insufficiently using insulin. So what, what are those benefits then for people who are not taking insulin? I think that's the question you're asking. Yeah. Most notably, it gets back to that piece that we talked about in terms of diagnosing diabetes in the first place. I would like to create the most stable, consistent pattern of blood glucose across the 24-hour day that I possibly could if I was using a CGM to manage diabetes or potentially to prevent diabetes. And in so doing, the goal is to put as little stress on my pancreas to make excessive amounts of insulin as I possibly can. So I can 
um, listen to guidance about what I should eat uh, in, in thinking about how to de-stress my pancreatic beta cells. And so I could stay away from simple carbohydrates. I could stay away from highly processed foods. I could stay away from uh, calorically dense foods, et cetera, um, in favor of much healthier options. But without a CGM, I can't actually know what impact those decisions are having on that glycemic stability and the spike of blood glucose that would otherwise happen if I didn't eat the best diet for me. And so what a CGM allows an individual who's not using insulin to do is to create the aspirational goal that we have for people like this, which is precision nutrition. Meaning that even though a recommended dietary regimen on a population level might in general be the best strategy for for the population as a whole, there are going to be people for whom that strategy is perfect, and there are going to be people for for whom that strategy is highly suboptimal, and another strategy might be even better for them. Without a CGM, that individual will not be able to find that best strategy. They simply can't know, and so they'll have to go with best guidance that a nutritionist or a doctor might give them or someone else or a book, for example. Um, without getting real-world data on themselves, verifying that indeed that dietary decision is a, is a highly effective one for them. The same goes for, for exercise, when to engage in it during the course of the day, how much exercise to engage in, what types of exercise to engage in. If you wanted to look at the impact of that from a glycemic stability standpoint, the only way to know the effectiveness of what's the best regimen for you is to have some sort of a monitor in place that can track the, the impact of that on the glucose itself. And so for all of these reasons, a CGM can be a critical tool um, for optimizing all of the inputs that affect glycemic control for people who are not on insulin. Whereas if you are on insulin, the first thing that the CGM does is make sure that you're giving yourself enough insulin when you need it and not too much insulin when you don't. And um, that's not an issue that people who don't take insulin need to worry about. But there's a whole host of other things that they do want to worry about, and they can't if they don't have a CGM. I was looking through some of the evidence on uh, exercise timing in terms of uh, postprandial glucose fluctuations, and it's pretty fascinating. It's not necessarily the type of exercise so much as the timing. So this is definitely something that we've seen um, in our own data as well. Like I could eat something and, you know, not really have the, the rise in glucose until one, two hours later. And sometimes it's immediate. And that depends on how I'm processing it, what the combination of food is, what, in what order I'm eating it, all these different things that we talk about. What have I eaten earlier? Um, and so the, you know, you can do a 30 minute walk per se, or these 15 minute walks after eating, which we, um, have seen over and over in the literature, like are, have a really clinically significant effect on glucose management. Um, but if you compare that with like, like super efficient bouts of high intensity exercise, you know, there's, there's, there's some evidence that like, if you were just doing 10 minutes of maximal, maximal intensity over, uh, you know, two or two to three times in a day. So it's like 30 minutes of exercise, which, you know, is in, in one block might be a little onerous in a schedule, but if you're walking up and down the stairs after lunch at work, you know, it seems a little more manageable. Um, you really can see pretty potent effects on glucose control and you might not know when to do that unless you're 
uh, you know, watching your glucose change in real time. So, you know, it's always physical activity is always going to be an important part of all this. Um, muscle mass itself is hugely important in, in glycemic regulation, but the the timing of it, I think, was such an interesting um, kind of unlock for for people who use CGMs or who are uh, are watching their glucose um, otherwise. Absolutely, I, I could not agree more with that. Um, uh, and 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 furthermore, um, the more interesting studies are done like this, sort of challenging traditional assumptions about um, nutrition and exercise, the more we realize that. We really don't know all that much. Um, and, and so, um, you know, for example, this idea about brief bouts of intense exercise versus prolonged stretches of, of, of you know, um, uh, submaximal exercise that reveals a whole lot about the, the connection between um, physical activity and, and, and glucose metabolism. And so if we just say that probably not everybody responds identically to any type of, of, of intervention, whether it be exercise or anything else, again, I think we are moving slowly but surely towards um, a scenario where the best way to know is to verify in real time on yourself um, because then you can create the best regimen for you knowing what impact it has on your own glucose, not what it had on a group of other cohort members in a study that might have, um, uh, you know, responded favorably, but that you don't know if you resemble the people who are in that study in some other ways. Um, and so this will allow you the ability to try different things out. Um, the other thing I, I, I will say as a pra practitioner, um, with a lot of patients in this, in this category uh, of, of worrying about diabetes or dealing with diabetes, um, you know, is, is that, uh, the, the inability to know whether it's going to be beneficial to you, you know, for example, with exercise leads people to just not exercise because they, they can't see the potential benefit. The only benefit people can see oftentimes if they don't have better tools is just the weight on the scale when they step on it every week. And if that number doesn't change, my patients get really disappointed and really dejected about the inability of anything that they ever try, quote unquote, to make a difference for themselves. And I try to tell them that you are making a lot of difference for yourself. Your metabolism is reorienting in response to the exercise that you're doing. But I, I can give them reassurance and they can trust that what I'm saying is true. But if people are skeptical, I don't have a lot more I can say to convince them until the next time we get labs three months from now, six months from now, a year from now. And sometimes people by that point will have quit their exercise regimen altogether and they're not, they're not coming back to clinic anymore. And so I think, again, these real-time tools provide reassurance now, right now, today, that what you're doing is making a difference for you and very little else, including the, the good words from your doctor, can necessarily always make you feel better about that in the same way. Yeah, it's reassurance and it's motivation. Like I, you know, Absolutely. I see those numbers moving and I'm like, ooh, this is the time, right? And I don't have to mm -hmm. be perfect. No one's going to be perfect in terms of getting those things, but you can always do a little bit generally. Um, or you can plan out your day otherwise, right? Like I, you know, I've talked about this before, but I am a shift worker. I often finish, you know, my shifts at midnight, 2 a.m. And I'm, you know, got a little bit of a commute. I have some candy or some, you know, something before I drive home and I go to bed and I'm, 
you know, through the roof all night and I sleep poorly and I wake up hungry. And that's, you know, a direct result of, um, what I'm choosing to eat right before bed. Um, and I, you know, I just sit in the car. So, you know, I have to really be careful about when, uh, when I eating or when and what I'm eating at night. Um, otherwise I, I have this problem. Um, I gave a, I gave an internal talk on, uh, to us about sleep and glucose metabolism. There's a extraordinary, uh, kind of bi-directional relationship between the two. It's very interesting. But, um, the study that I'll bring up was they, uh, they looked at people who slept for less than seven hours habitually, and they just said, just sleep more. <laughs> like that, that was the intervention. <laughs> Try and sleep for nine hours. Um, and then they compared these. And then the other group was just, you know, sleep however long you normally sleep. And the group that tried to sleep more, um, they didn't sleep nine hours. They think they slept like 45 minutes or like an hour longer. Um, uh, naturally ate. I think on average around 300 less calories a day. And that was without them. They didn't say exercise more. They didn't say diet more. They didn't say change your diet, nothing. They just said, try and sleep two hours more. And they saw this pretty, I mean, that's a 300 a day calories a day is a pretty uh, robust response, right? Like any, any, uh, any diet is going to be around that in terms of if you're trying to do a, a low calorie diet, uh, you know, 300 calories a day is kind of what's, you know, around what's recommended. And that was just them sleeping more. Um, naturally changing how, how much they're eating. And to, to your point, Dr. Kolawad, and also yours, Dr. Dixon, in terms of personalized medicine and, um, and the feedback loop and getting that, that immediate feedback with the CGM, one of the things that we do at Cygnos is really encourage our members to experiment. And things like movement is a great thing to experiment with, uh, both in terms of time of day, as we were discussing, but also fasted versus non-fasted, uh, duration, uh, intensity, all of these things. And looking at not just how you're responding immediately, but also you know maybe do uh, a different type of movement over the course of a week and compare your weekly averages to see what's making a difference. And, and perhaps that what the current data is showing about afternoon workouts might be more beneficial for you. Maybe not. It really does depend on the individual. So just to, uh, I want to hit one other, um, one other section. It's, it's a topic that's come up a lot. In fact, uh, Dr. Dixon and myself did a podcast about it and it's about, uh, GLP one agonist drugs, drugs like Wagovi and, uh, Ozempic, I'm curious, Dr. Kolwad, um, if uh, your uh, what your experience has been with these medications and the patients that you see, and uh, really fascinated with um, with whether or not your patients are able to take these drugs indefinitely, or if um, some of them find that they want to use them for a period of time, and then what happens if they do decide to discontinue uh, one of these drugs. Yeah, um, uh, I uh, have a lot of experience now, as do a lot of us in, in the field of diabetology, in prescribing the entire class of GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, the um, notable features of them are that they are, with each successive uh, drug that's coming out in this context, um, more and more powerful with respect to, um, to the combination of both weight loss and diabetes um, uh, control. They have benefits on uh, cardiovascular risk reduction um, and increasingly are, are being shown to have benefits on other aspects of metabolic health as well. 
So there's a lot of good things about this class of medications, and they they are going further beyond simply um, uh, binding to and activating one receptor, namely the glucagon-like uh, uh, peptide one receptor or GLP one receptor, to um, drugs like the current FDA-approved newest drug called Munjaro, where the the same molecule can bind to two different hormonal receptors, GLP one and GIP simultaneously um, because it's a multi-structural molecule that can do both things at once. And that is showing even more powerful effects than the single um, uh, receptor agonist. And then uh, soon we are likely to have the triple agonist, um, which can bind simultaneously to GLP-1 receptor, the GIP receptor, and the glucagon receptor. Um, and will probably be even more efficacious with respect to, for example, weight loss, bordering on or even achieving 30% weight loss in, in individuals on average who take it. Now, um, with that, um, there are a couple of caveats that I think are really important, despite the fact that these are amazing drugs and the biology is astounding and the, re- the science behind them is, is absolutely thrilling. Um, one is that they do commonly cause nausea in people who take them. And in fact, the, the, the fact that they produce nausea is part of the way they work um, in, in, in a manner of speaking. It's not a completely nonspecific side effect. It's central to the mechanism of action uh, on the brain um, that curbs appetite. Um, that nausea can be limiting to the point where you just can't stay on the drug anymore. Um, that nausea can be associated with abdominal pain, discomfort, diarrhea, a whole host of GI symptoms um, that can be um, really vexing, um, not relenting, or too profound to stay on the medicine. So there are people who can't tolerate being on these medicines, and for those people, we need to be really careful. Um, there are people who de- develop pancreatic inflammation, so-called pancreatitis, who take them. Thankfully, that's rare, but we do need to watch out for people who develop abdominal pain that won't go away after they start these medicines, and those people should not be on them as well. Um, you asked about um, the, the, the body weight and um, metabolic benefit when you stop the medicine. So in every study that's been done thus far on these medicines, within months, at least within six months, if not shorter, after stopping the medicine, all of the weight um, came back on and all of the metabolic disruption reemerged once again. So therefore, you're talking about medic- medications that, um, until proven otherwise, need to be given you know, indefinitely to people um, once you start them. Um, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that for any of these medicines, you don't get the full effect, not even necessarily close to the full effect, unless taking the medicine is coupled with the appropriate behavioral, um, efforts that we've spent this entire time together discussing. In fact, these efforts relevant to diet, exercise, stress management, sleep are essential for the proper effectiveness of GLP-1 receptor agonists, dual agonists, and I'm sure that that'll be the case for the triple agonists as well. So it's the synergy between um, the medication and the rest of the uh, of one's behavioral um, uh, milieu that really makes the difference. And if we are ever going to get to the point where we could envision a two to five year potentially period of time on medication followed by a, um, uh, a, a withdrawal of the medication and then see if people can maintain the metabolic benefits, 
the data we have thus far suggests that the only way we are going to be able to get to a point like that where people can come off of these medications safely is if they use that time on medication to actually ground themselves in the behavioral reorientation of their lives that would be necessary to ultimately allow them to come off the medication without the weight completely going back up again. Um, so these are some of the caveats with these medications. The final one I'll say that I think is still really important to remember is that despite all the hype and despite all of the um, the, the immediate benefits that people are seeing as the util- utilization of these drugs is becoming more and more common, um, that we don't have experience with patients having taken these drugs for 20 plus years yet. And because we're seeing pancreatitis in people, rarely thankfully, but because we are seeing it sometimes, um, it, and because you're talking about a hormonal receptor that regulates the, um, the maintenance uh, and self-renewal of, of metabolic tissues, is it possible that we might see oncologic effects or other um, uh, you know, effects that would be really negative if people are on these medications for decades at a time? We don't know the answer to that question yet. We, we don't think so based on the mouse data, um, but we don't know in humans um, anything about that yet. And so we, need, we do need to be cautious as we go forward, paying attention to safety signals all along the way, because we are not giving patients, in this case, a medication that's um, improving upon an existing class, but rather these are medications that are building on a brand new class of medicines that did not exist in humanity prior to the early aughts at all. Um, and so we don't have that long of a track record with these um, in wide usage, but the proliferation of this um, class has increased essentially exponentially within the last one year. And so, you know, this is totally uncharted territory that we're entering into now. It sounds like the important message here, though, is that lifestyle changes should be implemented while you're on one of these drugs. And then if you do decide to go off these drugs, you should maintain those lifestyle changes. Uh, if you if you want to maintain the, the benefit you received when you're on them. Yes, absolutely. I think this is um, this is a principle that uh, the most recent studies um, looking at GLP ones in combination with lifestyle relevant factors have um, uniformly indicated is true. Okay. One last question for you, Doc, and that's what, what do you see the future um, of treatment for type two diabetes? I think that that the future of type two diabetes. Prevention and treatment is a function of what we are calling precision medicine. Precision medicine means that we can customize an approach to each individual. Um, We didn't spend much time talking about this, but diabetes type 2 is a polygenic genetic disease or so-called complex genetic disease, a lot like um, cardiovascular disease and, and heart attack risk is a complex genetic disease, meaning that we inherit polymorphisms, um, single um, uh, uh, substitutions of uh, individual amino acids and key proteins relevant to very small genetic um, uh, differences from person to person, not in just one gene that is really powerful by itself, which characterizes 
thankfully very rare diseases that we call monogenic diseases, um, but rather in a whole host of genes, each of which exerts a very small effect. But when in combination, a person inherits um, a, a, an unfavorable mix of these polymorphisms, renders them at, at a genetic disadvantage and therefore vulnerable to developing diabetes in their lifetime. So none of us knows, well, not very many of us anyways, know what combination of those polymorphisms we inherited, each of us individually. But we each have a somewhat unique risk for diabetes that's specific to us as an individual. And with that in mind, and given the fact that diabetes is what we call a gene times environment interaction, so it's that complex genetic disease coupled with all of the behavioral elements that we've spent time talking about multiplied over a long duration of time that leads to a person either developing or not developing diabetes. Because of all of that, it's logical to assume, therefore, that everyone has an optimal approach to limiting diabetes for them and that not everyone will respond equally well to every medicine, not everyone will, will, will respond equally well to every dietary regimen, and not everyone will respond equally well to every form of exercise. But each person has a best diet for them, a best form of exercise for them, and, um, and you know, a, be, a specifically best sleep pattern um, uh, for them, uh, best timing of meals for them, and so on. All the different factors um, are probably optimized in a specific way for a given individual. And so, whereas 20 years ago, uh, the American Diabetes Association said, if you have type 2 diabetes, the first medication you should take is metformin. The second thing that should happen if metformin um, uh, is not sufficient to control your hemoglobin A1C is that you should go on a medication called a sulfonylurea in combination with metformin. And if the combination of those two things don't control your diabetes, or if they do, but then they cease to after a certain amount of time, then you should go on insulin. If that was what we were saying 20 years ago, we are now saying that there are many different choices for, for uh, medication management. And doctors should work with their patients to determine which medicine they should provide first based on other factors, presence or absence of kidney disease, presence or absence of high blood pressure, presence or absence of heart disease, presence or, or absence of obesity, uh, presence or absence of visceral, central, intra-abdominal obesity, family history and other factors. Those should dictate whether a person gets metformin or perhaps a whole different medicine as the very first one that they get for diabetes. And that the second medicine, combination of medicines and all of the rest of it should be customized for the individual. So my idea of the future of diabetes is that we not only do that customizing for medicines, but we do that customizing for the combination of medicines with everything else that an individual do to, um, uh, to control their, their risk for advancement of diabetes or the development of diabetes in the first place. And so for that, again, because the doctor-patient interaction is extremely time-limited in our American healthcare system, that optimization, that individualization requires tools so that people can get insight to make, um, uh, to make real-time corrections in patterns of behavior and potentially in medication choices. Um, and so that's where tools like what Cygnos is developing become really important because you need vehicles to create that customization and standard um, uh, American practice of healthcare does not include those tools in it. And so they have to be brought in from the outside. And that's where 
we all need to be working together to create an ecosystem that promotes uh, precision medicine in the area of diabetes. And that's what I think we're, we're all striving to achieve. That, that, I believe, is what the future is. Gets me so fired up. <laughs> that's awesome. That's super well put. And I think to add like that, that, uh, that integration needs to happen across the health system too. So like if they, you know, I would say once a week, basically I'm diagnosing somebody with diabetes. And a lot of times maybe they are, a, you know, their primary care doctor two, three years ago, they were told that they're pre-diabetic and they just haven't been able to follow up, you know, and we're in an area where access to care is really high compared to a lot of the country. Mm-hmm. And still we see these problems. And, um, and, you know, I, I getting people plugged in so that I don't necessarily have to be the world leading expert in diabetes to be able to make these personalized decisions for people quickly um, and get them to the right person quickly. Uh, I just think is is awesome. So anyways, that, pre- <laughs> that was a, well, very well put and just awesome to hear. Yeah, thanks. And, and it, it, it fires me up, too, because I think this is all palpable right now. All yeah. of this stuff is right there. We just need to start thinking in implementation-oriented terms for how do we integrate these things across our population, starting with the most vulnerable people and working to the people who have the most access. And, and boy, I mean, like, the sky's the limit in terms of what we might be able to do if we have the courage to do it. Well, Dr. Kolawad, thank you for spending time with us and sharing your expertise. Uh, you've provided some amazing insights. Uh, and... Dr. Dixon, it's great to have you on the side of the table co-hosting with me. I uh, hope to have you both back on Body Signals really soon. Yeah, I'd love it. Thanks for the time, and, and thanks, Will, for, for the, the interaction. I think that you made some incredibly important points as well. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Kolawad. Take care. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body Signals. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to our feed. Also, please share this episode with your friends. For those of you who are not yet Cygnos members, go to Cygnos.com, S-I-G-N-O-S.com, and use the code BODYSIGNALS, all one word, to get your 15% discount on Cygnos. We look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Body Signals.